Welcome to the Next Level Brands podcast, where we share stories about the food and CPG world with experts in the trenches about how to build a successful brand today. Now, your host, G. Stephen Clear. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today at the Next Level Brands podcast, brought to you as always by the Next Level Brands CPG community. If you have a growing firm in food, beverage, or health and wellness, you should be part of the Next Level Brands community. Courses, workshops, founder coaching, resources, networking, and a whole lot more. Having a challenge with distributors, funding, or promotions? The Community Hub is fully searchable by keyword, and you can get right to the answers you're seeking, or one of our team members can help you find what you're looking for. More information available at nextlevelbrands.com. That's next with two X's, nextlevelbrands.com, what you need to know to grow. Hi, folks. I'm Steve Clear. We've got a great show for you today. We're going for a deep dive into the educational side of entrepreneurship in the food and beverage business. Joining me today is Sarah Massoni, the Director of Product and Process Development at Oregon State University's Food Innovation Center, the FIC, where she has resided and presided for 20 years. Sarah has dedicated her career to food entrepreneurship and development, working as a liaison between the university and the food manufacturing industry, helping to transfer valuable information to startups who require guidance to get their concepts going. Over the course of her career, she's helped literally thousands of entrepreneurs realize their vision, by helping them develop foods that are market ready, including household names such as Salt and Straw, Bob's Red Mill, and Keto Pint. Sarah is also a recognized flavor specialist with strong relationships with ingredient vendors and flavor companies, and regularly serves as an official judge for local and national product evaluations. In fact, she was recently cited by the New York Times as having a million dollar palette. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Well, thanks, Steve. I'm really glad to be here today. It's nice to uh, be able to chat about my favorite subject, food. <laughs> Absolutely. So first, <laughs> the million-dollar palette, is that making a million dollars or spending a million dollars? How does I that mean, work? I haven't been able to <laughs> cash in on that check yet, So, but I think really, as time goes on, what it really means is, for me, a palette is more like, think of an artist with a palette full of colors, and the colors are tools sort of that I might have in my back pocket. And so when I chat with somebody and they might have a problem, I tend to be able to point them in a direction or help them out um, and solve problems. I'm a problem solver. There you go. Right. Yeah. Well, that's common to those of us who are in consulting, teaching and all those things. Yes. Um, We don't don't try to create problems, although sometimes we probably do. But some people think all they do is create problems. (laughs) So did, did you start out in, in academic or did you work in the industry for a while and come over? Well, I have to say that I started in academics because my dad was a food science professor. And I always tell people I got my PhD around the kitchen table, but <laughs> I graduated from OSU in the late eighties and actually went right into a little cheese factory on the Oregon coast and was a cheese maker for about six oh. months. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is too much work. I'm not built for this. It was a lot of lifting and early mornings and things like that. And so I moved out of that area, went and got some technical experience working for a a testing lab, and then ultimately ended up in a big CPG company called Wholesome and Hearty Foods. That was the home of the Garden Burger at the time. Oh, the Garden Burger, yeah. And I really cut my teeth there. I spent about nine years doing formulation and process and all sorts of things and manufacturing, and then ultimately ended up at the Food Innovation Center in about 2000. So I've been here, yeah, over 20 years. And a lot of, a lot of great stuff has come out of there. I mean, it's a, it's a hotbed of uh, innovation and entrepreneurship, which is great. It is. 
let me ask you real quick about um, the idea of for people are out there in our audience. Most of them are entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs. I think I have my grandmother's recipe for baked beans. It's just absolutely incredible. Now that's great. I can probably pull that off even when I get to a commercial kitchen. But if I go to a co-packer or I go to try to scale, not the same thing, recipes and formulas. Can you tell us a little bit about why that's different and how it impacts you if you're trying to grow your business? Yeah. So one of the things we do in our home kitchen is we use um, measuring cups and teaspoons and tablespoons. And in manufacturing, we really need to use a scale. So one of the primary things that I always tell a food entrepreneur is convert your recipe from volumetric to weights, because not only will you have a more reproducible product, you'll actually be able to figure out how much the thing costs. (laughs) You can't build a business if you don't know how much the product costs. So that's super important. Are most of, and again, folks that are in the the FIC or whatever, or, or where you are working, are most of them foodies that are trying to scale something or build a brand or get their family's product out there? Or are they people that are, you know, I'll call them refugees from other industries that all of a sudden think, oh yeah, I want to do food and bev. Yeah, we have all kinds of people. And the funny part is, you know, we're hometown for a lot of manufacturing companies like Nike and Adidas and Xerox has a big office down the road. Anyway, whenever there's a layoff, guess what? We see crossover industry people trying to start up and it's almost like they feel, you know, that since they've been manufacturing in another industry, they can easily implement that into food. And also I think there's a misconception about if I have money, I can start a food company. I think that really people need to have passion. I think passion for whatever it is they're making might be the second most important thing to knowing how much your product costs and what your formula is. Because if you can't tell a story about the food you're trying to sell, people aren't going to believe you. And you sort of come across as disingenuous, in my opinion. One of the first chances I had to work with a startup or smaller company as opposed to a larger CPG two recently retired in their 30s tech guys fell in love with the product and their kids actually love the product too. And they wanted to be investors and they wanted to be active investors. And they started looking at kind of the the forecast and and the books and whatever else. Uh And we're like, how does this work? This no, there's no way you can't. <laughs> this doesn't. This doesn't compute. I don't see. I don't see how I'm going to get an ROI anywhere here quickly. And it's like, no, yeah. you're not. You know, and but it's that difference of a huge difference between tech and food, but of building something, a brand that does require some type of authenticity. You can't just work on the computer. Yes, and and, and you know, and bringing that to bringing that to market, which is not not an easy thing. Yeah. One of my good friends actually came from one of those big companies I mentioned, and they have a really nice product line. And every year at the same time, I get a call or a text, Hey, kitchen's kind of slow. What do you think I should do? And like, after this, this last fall, I'm like, dude, every freaking year at the same time, you text me and say, Hey, we're kind of slow in the kitchen. I said, did you ever think maybe this is your slow season and you should plan for it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) We're not, there's almost everything. Yeah. Especially like the ice cream industry is super seasonal. 
Right. So it go to, goes to sleep like in September and doesn't wake up until March. <laughs> Have you ever worked on ideas for trying to do counter cyclical? I'd say a lot of our little companies that I work with here regionally aren't kind of to that scale to really need to, to really think about it. it. Yeah, yep. but I, I remember hearing a long time ago about Ben and Jerry's doing that. They shared their workforce with an, you know another company sort of rotating people back and forth. And I think that's a really good sustainable idea to keep your people working. Maybe partner with somebody who has a different seasonal product and, you know, rotate your people around, share the production staff. As you look, you know, back on the different companies and stuff that that you've worked with, whether they succeeded or didn't succeed, what do you think one of the biggest sets of challenges is for people trying to get into our industry? I mean, I think really it has to do with a fine balance between probably three things. You have to have somebody who has a creative idea and understands how to make the food. And then you have to have production. So a way to manufacture, because a lot of times it's not hard to sell really good foods. What's hard is actually to manufacture and keep up with orders. So a lot of companies actually stop because they just can't sell enough or, you know, produce enough to sell to fill orders. And then the third is, um, well, actually, third's kind of money and marketing, you know, the business side. Yeah. So I think all three of those things have to align. It's kind of right place, right time, right idea kind of a thing. That's how I'd say it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because now after a few years with those working with those kind of folks is to see stuff that, you know, I would look at strictly mainly from a marketing standpoint and say, this is a home run, folks. This one's going to go. Yeah. And it didn't. And I've seen other ones where it was like, you're like, no way is this going to make it. In no fact, way. I stopped judging. I'm like, people come in there like, what do you think of this idea? I'm like, don't ask me. I'm just here to, you know, give you the technical advice. You're the one who's got to look, right. you know, figure that part out because there's some really great brands. I always talk about Jake Jacobson salt, which is one of okay. the famous salts that came out of Oregon here. Ben Jacobson came in. He was so excited. He was going to you know, get a spot on the Oregon coast and harvest the water. And he was already doing it in a shared use kitchen here in town. And I, and he was like, can I do it at the food innovation center? And I just started like calculating in my head, how much we were going to have to charge for the time because our facility is not free. Right. And I was like, I don't, I don't know. I'm sorry. We, you know, we just can't support it. And then I was thinking in my head, how's this guy going to ever really How's he going to do it? And turns out he was one of the most successful regional new brands probably in the last 15 years. And I always use that as my example of why I should never, you know, judge who's going to do what. I have no idea. I'm, yeah. I'm just here to help. I've so far been able to avoid being a judge in pitch competitions. I've, I've been invited a number of times. I just say, you know what? I'll do whatever you want. I'll mentor I'll help out. I'll promote it. I'll, I'll talk at it, whatever you want. Please don't ask me to sit there and, you know, pass some kind of judgment on, you know, oh my God, I need this $10,000 so bad to keep going. I don't want to do that. I mean, the larger pitch competitions, I think sometimes throw a monkey wrench into the business. If, if it's not the exact right time for the funding to come in, 
mistakes are made and it's, I, I think there, I believe there's a true way to grow business and it's not always necessarily fast. So I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of the competition to be honest watch, with you. Do you watch Shark Tank? I watch it because I want to know what's happening. And I have a lot of people out of Oregon that have been, that I've worked with in some capacity that have been yep. on that show. So it's informational for me in some cases. I, I have done it because, but I have to have a reason. That yeah. I have to know, or the, or, the, or the product is in a category or one of the two of them is, I call it snark tank. That's my favorite, you know, whatever. But I've seen that happen, what you just described, which is where somebody gets a shot in the arm from Shark Tank, but it wasn't the right time. They weren't ready. The process wasn't ready. And, you know. Or the investor thinks they know better. Like, and that kind of ties back to the money thing. Just because you have money doesn't mean you get to start a food business. And just because you have money doesn't mean you get to invest and be bossy in a food business either because you got your money generally from somewhere else, not necessarily from being a food expert. And I found, you know, even people who have built big brands, food brands in the past, aren't necessarily the best investors either. And so I would say if people need money for their work, then they should apply for you know, get a really solid business plan and apply for a SBA loan or some sort of grant or federal funding that really isn't, it's not bringing influence to your business. It allows you to stay on the path that you originally created, which will actually ultimately give you the best success. Yeah. I, I'm always excited if somebody can find what we call strategic partners. Hmm. Some people are lucky enough they're they have a co-manufacturer who actually- Well, a co-manufacturer really is a partner because they're investing line time and knowledge. Yeah. And I don't think people really look at their co-packer as an asset, but really having a good co-packer is an asset. And if anyone would want to partner with you and make sure you're successful, it would be the people who are co-manufacturing for you. So how do you guys organize- the Food Innovation Center. How, how does it work? What's the sort of you know structure? And- so, yeah. So the OSU Food Innovation Center was actually the first food innovation center in the U.S. We received um, grant funding, federal grant, and a bond to build the facility. And OSU owns the building. I think we were almost paid off the bond on the facility. We're downtown Portland. Right. Which is pretty unusual. So we're, I think we may be the only urban agricultural experiment station. The reason Oregon decided to have this food innovation center was because we have a large variety of commodities produced in the state. We hang our hat on about 220, but in a meeting with a bunch of university um, researchers, I once heard we actually have over 1,200 varieties and different specialty Mm -hmm. crops grown in our state. So we have, I believe, 13 branch experiment stations and each one has a unique responsibility to to whatever crop they study so one's in eastern Oregon is potatoes and there's one with onions and then one in the valley has does all the small fruits and tree um, crops and things like that and that's how OSU as a state land grant university transfers information out into the community is through the agricultural experiment stations and through extension 
And we started the Food Innovation Center because a lot of our our foods were being produced and then shipped across state lines. And there were a couple of fellows in charge many, many years ago who said, hey, let's create more value-added food products here because that'll bring more state dollars into the state instead of us just producing the commodities and sending them somewhere else where value-added was done. Now we were trying to do more value-added here in the state of Oregon. So when I came to the Food Innovation Center, it was relatively new. It opened in May of 1999, and I started here in December of 2000. I came out of industry, and like most universities, they hire people for their areas of expertise. It took me a little while to figure out, oh, I actually have an area of expertise. (laughs) I know how to formulate food. So I really built my program on helping food entrepreneurs because Oregon's always been known for, of course, our great variety of commodities, but also for many, many years, we've always had groups of people who were out there, you know, shepherding what they believe the food economy should be. And over the last 20 years, we've really, really gone deep into what the food economy should be. I think we also might be like the first groups that had the farm to school programs. We have a tremendous farmer's market program throughout the state. We have, you know, farmers and ranchers and commodity commissions and different levels of support through small business administration and small business development centers. We have programs through Built Oregon. There's a big food economy here. I think it's over 50 billion or something. I don't know. It's It's crazy. Yeah. 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 When, 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 when I started actually working in, in San Francisco in entrepreneurship, it was through SBA, SBDC that I mm-hmm. actually got brought into small food companies uh-huh. and it was, Oh my God, this is really exciting. And, and some of them, it was, it was pretty even San Francisco it was pretty even split between mission-based and totally eccentric foodie. Right. So it's like, you know, like working with a woman loved her. She had the $25 truffle. And it was like, okay, well, this is probably the most wonderful thing I've ever tasted, but no one is going to be able to afford it. So, and I'm not even sure where you can cook it, but you know, it was one of those things. So we split sort of in that area. Uh-huh. And as time has gone by, where people in regenerative farming, insect protein, it's like this is so far out of whatever. I mean, I insect protein is one that's bounced. I mean, I remember the first time I heard about it, and you know, when I first started here a long time ago. 20 years ago, the internet was kind of a newish thing. And I was like, I'm going to look on the internet and see if I can find somebody I could buy some, you know, bug protein from. (laughs) I actually ordered some from China at the time. And I was like, I got it. And I was like, oh, this is just awful. I kept it in the freezer. I want to produce something with bug protein. And then one of the things about it is it's not really scalable. So after a lot of fits and starts, we still need people to produce the the bugs if that's going to become a reality. And that's very difficult. Cricket ranches. Yeah, we need cricket ranches. Yeah. So that in 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 one again, one of the pitch competitions uh, we had here in Boise called Trail Mix. Mm -hmm. Two years ago, the winner was a cricket protein based set of spices and, and herbs and spices. And the amazing thing about it was it's sponsored by our wonderful friends at Albertsons. And as part of the deal, besides winning money, you get shelf space at Albertsons. And I'm going, oh, I can't wait to take the pictures of this. The day that an insect protein spice 
goes on the shelf at Albert, but they did. I give them the, give them credit. They did what they said they were going to do. But the idea there was is that it was a gateway, which I thought was a good idea. It it there there wasn't a taste issue. There wasn't whatever. I mean, yeah. you're putting it in with garlic and curry, and you don't know that there's anything in there. It's just, I mean, you could put it on potato chips, and probably people would eat it. People and would it, eat it. Right. It would be novel. It would be. I mean, even to add one gram of protein to a serving of potato chips, you would have to have a lot of cricket lot powder. Of but but there are guys out there ranching them. Ranching. Yeah. I'm going out with the horse and the thing, and I don't know how you hustling and rustling crickets has got to be worse than cats. I mean, do they brand them? Like, how do they know if it came from another ranch? I don't oh, know. My. You stole my cricket. <laughs> we got a wild one. Got a wild one in here. Oh goodness. So. Let me ask you real quick about how did the pandemic affect or is still affecting what you're doing? Did you see an uptick in in things slow down? What would you see? Well, as soon as that happened, it was a Friday, I think, that they told us, okay, Monday, you can't come to the office. So I told them, my people, okay, grab a scale, take all your ingredients on whatever projects you're working on. We all have kitchens at home. We'll just move to Zoom and have... For about a year and a half, we had daily meetings at 1130 um, on Zoom. Yeah. Thankfully, they consider our facility of food, food facility and the labs open back up really pretty quickly. But we still uh, maintain our kitchen and stuff at home for quite some time. We actually did a noble service for the community here and helped a lot of restaurateurs pivot and put their foods into grocery stores. So when the shelves were empty, you know, there were some times when shelves were empty. Some of the local service food service industry people were creating products and putting them on the local grocery store shelves. And we we just helped people figure it out just because we were cool. And that was all done over Zoom. And, And then really our business never slowed down. We've just been, everybody had time to sit at home and go, oh, now's the time I should make my chocolate chip cookies and sell them. So that's really what's happened. I think maybe one of the biggest things I've noticed during COVID is the realization that the supply chain has been interrupted and that maybe it's okay if I don't always have my, you know, barbecue sauce in the exact same bottle. Or, you know, I can be more flexible and choose different types of packaging when I need to. And when I talk to people about their formulas, I always say, now, you know, you might be in the kitchen and realize you have a shortage of something. If you work within that 100% and just move your numbers around, your product will be pretty much the same. But you'll be able to accommodate those problems that you might have with supply supply chain. Right. Getting through. Mm Mm-hmm. What about the impact of e-commerce? Good, bad, ugly? Well, the thing that I noticed about e-commerce is that a lot of people are ordering larger amounts of different types of foods they use at home. For instance, we're gluten-free at our house, and I just started ordering a whole case of the crackers we like. (laughs) I was like... We like the crackers. They're available online. Let's just buy a case of them and, you know, save a dollar package and buy them directly. And I think some of that's going to carry over. I think it's still full steam ahead. I'm not too sure if the actual retail buyers like the online systems oh, yeah. that oh, I yeah. put together. Yeah. I don't know yeah. what you've heard about that, but I think 
you know, with the recent trade show, shows that were the fancy food show in Las Vegas was really well attended and everybody had a genuinely great, great show. And I think you just mentioned that Expo West was really good. Yep. I think people want to get out and meet the meet the people behind the food. Like the story that the food entrepreneurs create really does carry over in supply chain and to the to the consumer's table and the buyers need to meet people. They want to know who's making those foods they have in their store. So there have been some brilliant campaigns with meet the farmer, meet the whatever that even large companies, I mean, Land O'Lakes, I think did that. And, you know, it was like, you want to see the cows where they're growing in Wisconsin? Here they are. Yeah. Here's, here's Tony, I mean, he's the farmer. I was interviewed for an article about Organic Valley. You know, they have most of the organic milk across the U.S. And they were doing a campaign for being able to go on the farm and see where the, you know, meet the cows and all that stuff too. So a very different yeah, relationships, very different I think are important. I think once you establish somebody as a brand user, then you can go and buy the case. Like I just bought two boxes of, um, oh, I don't remember what they're called. Actually, it's in my, I got my wrapper right here. I I bought two boxes of Cliff Bar Builders Protein Bars because they have 20 grams of protein. Builders Protein. And so if you're on Weight Watchers, like I just went on because I got to lose the COVID-20. I can eat, you know, a half of that bar for one of my snacks and it fits in my point system. And then I don't feel like snacking. <laughs> so good. Good. Old. Cliff Bar is an ex-client actually from years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. When we did uh, Luna, Luna Bar. Yeah. Uh, They're launch. selling Cliff selling direct to consumers. So you can just go on their website and order. That's what I did. It's been interesting because there has been amongst some of the larger, medium and larger sizes, there have been, there are some people that I I go and I look at the website to get information, whatever. And very clearly there is a D2C component, but it is 3PL or it's a third party logistics company is handling it. It's even a lot of times a different website. Yeah. Um, and, And other ones have taken it internally and really made it into a, you know, this is the journey come with us, whatever. And I look at that and I think, I wonder what the buyer at Walmart thinks about this, that I want you to go take this journey and buy it directly from me. Cause you know, that can have consequences. I mean, I, for me, when I bought those bars, the price was the same. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of a convenience deal. I mean, if you think about those buyers in the grocery store, they're always looking for what's new anyway. So some of these brands that like this Cliff Bar, it's been around for a long time. So the users and the people that are in that category, if they want to buy a case of it, they should be able to go buy a case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if they want to buy one, they can go where there's a bunch of boxes open and pick a variety and pick what they want, you know, one by one. There there is a, uh, there's kind of a, um, where e-commerce has maybe forced this a little bit, and that is, the fact that it, while a store can support a retail store can support having, you know, a case of six or whatever on the shelf, and you go buy one item, a lot of times in e-commerce that really doesn't make sense either mm-hmm. to the e-commerce platform or to the cost of delivery or to the manufacturer. Yeah, so we put, we, a box of six, on the other hand, and depending upon you know certainly you know shelf life and usage pattern and all that. But there's a lot of stuff, snacks, for instance, that you can sell six and I'll guarantee you they'll use them up. 
Yeah, they will. And and we've become really consumers of prepackaged like snacky stuff. Like snacks are big. Mm-hmm. I like to have some of the snacks I like in my cupboard and that my family likes. I can just grab a couple and just have them in case I need them, you know? Yeah, you just have it's them convenience. Skip, skip lunch, just a, a big, you know, just have a snack or skip yeah. um, grazing. I think that's the other thing that happened from, you know, again, I'm, you know, you and I both, but working from home is, you know, you get done with the meeting, get off Zoom, walk out to the kitchen and son of a gun. Oh, oops. I just ate that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you do that about two or three times during the day. And it's like, that's why I have that double chin right now. <laughs> but so, so let me ask you a little bit. I want to go back to this million dollar pallet idea. So, okay. All right. Um, when you're working with someone in the formula or whatever, there are, of course, there are things that can be substituted. There are things that can be. There are ingredients that cost too much. How, how do you look at something to try and improve it? Or, or do you just try to replicate what they bring you? So I always work on the premise that if the folks came in and they were told that you should bottle this or sell it, there's a reason why. Because it maybe already tastes really good like to the general public. And so what we'll do is kind of fine-tune something. Mm-hmm. So a good example is a little restaurant in Beaverton. That was a Vietnamese restaurant. They had a bunch of different sauces that they were making. And oftentimes the restaurants will make sauces, but they'll use other retail products. Right. And so what I'll say is, well, like for barbecue sauce, that's a classic one. Everyone knows that a good barbecue sauce starts with Worcestershire sauce and ketchup, right? (laughs) Of course. So as food scientists, we can say, okay, you have ketchup in there. Let's break it down. Let's make a ketchup for you. And the people go, we can make our own ketchup. <laughs> like, of course, you're going to just have like tomato paste and, you know, apple cider vinegar and a couple of little spices in there and some different kinds of sweeteners. And suddenly you're not paying that retail price for the, you know, the foundation of your sauce. And so I've done that a lot for people. I've done it for mostly what I would say are um, ethnic restaurants. That uh, a lot of different. I've done Indian food, Hispanic foods, Vietnamese, Chinese. A lot of different diverse clients coming and ready to commercialize something that really characterizes their food, and they want to share that with the general public and get it onto shelves so people can have the enjoyment at home. And sort of have, you know, variety. Yeah, and go and, and get something a little bit, a little bit different. Mm-hmm. What's the role now of, or I mean, sensitivity and whatever of allergens in food production? Because we can't produce this in here, and the co-packer won't do this because it's got dairy and it's got whatever. How, how does that look today? I. It's kind of funny because people are either all in with something that would be like free from everything or they're just like i don't care i'm putting peanuts in there (laughs) (laughs) so it's all over the place i would say it's in the i would kind of when the whole foods shakeup happened when amazon got involved there yeah there was a lot of stuff that went down and i think they kind of gave up some of their power by eliminating some of the small people 
because what that did actually was eliminate some of the power they had with their list of acceptable ingredients mm-hmm. because other people took their place as targets for where the people wanted to sell their product. And I, I think that retailers don't understand the power that they have in the food system by making decisions about what they're going to sell and buy and what's acceptable and what isn't, which to me is really has a lot to do with the allergen allergens. Now we have nine because they added sesame seeds. Right. And sesame seeds have been an allergen in many other countries where they're more prevalent. The consumption here has increased with the addition of things like hummus and tahini, of course, and other things like that. So, you know, I, I think allergens are relatively new as far as us being required to put them on the package. Mm-hmm. That kind of happened, I believe, in the 90s. Started yeah, to happen and when yeah. the Nutrition Labeling Education Act came out. It's sort of old. For me, it's kind of old news. It's just something that we have to do. It's not like we have to relearn it. It's already been learned and implemented. And people who are affected by it are all aware of it now. Yep, and, and they read and labels. And, yep. yep, everybody knows it. It's not like we have to teach people it. I mean, whenever you're trying to do something new and there's education involved, that's when it's complicated. (laughs) No, for sure. It's it's one of those things of um, how you move mainstream with an idea and almost everybody has got something they're probably a little allergic to. So we're not, you know, you don't have to necessarily have celiac disease or have lactose intolerance. Yeah. Somebody's got, everybody's got a little something that makes them you know, their nose get a little full or whatever. It, it just, you know, it happens. And you don't even really notice because it's always been happening to you. And every time you do eat something you're allergic to, it stays in your body for two weeks. And then we actually crave those things somehow, the things that make us oh, not feel not good, good are the things we want. I mean, it's like an addiction, basically. Oh, and, and interesting. Yeah. Sort of a physiological, how, how does this, how does this work? As, as well as just being like addicted to, you know, ice cream or something. You know? I mean, I'm, I'm totally addicted to sugar. I'd have to say it's a real thing. <laughs> sugar is a real, sugar is a real issue. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if the new nutritional labeling or not, not new now, but it was sort of new. The added sugar call outs and stuff is going to be good. But I, I heard at Expo actually in places like, new? yeah, Colombia and Chile and mm-hmm. Mexico, they now have to put this on the out. They have to put sugar, sodium, and one other one, calories, on the outside of the box. And if it goes above the government standard, the lettering is in red. And if it's below the within the government standard, the lettering is in blue. Yeah, we have some ties to Chile. Down in Chile, there's a group called Creus. And I, my gal, one of the gals I work with, and I went down in 2015 and we did a bunch of training. And Chile is an example of a country where they were shipping all of their really good foods that they grow outside of the country. Right. And then the supply chain inside the country is really bad. Like I went in a grocery store and I was like, where, wait, there was a whole aisle of just eggs. And then there was an aisle that was like (laughs) triple sided from floor to ceiling of different types of soda pops. Like, yeah, it yeah. was really, really bad. I mean, one case only of just bologna and hot dogs. It was the weirdest experience I'd ever had in a grocery store. And recently I was having a conversation with somebody from Chile and they said, 
know they've made really strict rules about like what's acceptable and not acceptable now. Like almost the pendulum went the opposite direction. Yeah. Like to correct. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Be interesting to to see as that change. And also again, as e-commerce makes those borders, you know, a lot more, a lot more flexible. Let me ask you, Sarah, about podcasting because you're a fellow podcaster. Oh yeah. All right. And the program is meaningful marketing. With meaningful marketplace. Marketplace. Yes, meaningful that marketplace. That's okay. And 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 who is your partner you're working with? Sarah Marshall. She is the owner of Marshall's Hot Sauce, and that's spelled H-A-U-T-E. And she came to me in the at the Food Innovation Center in 2010 or 2011, and she decided she wanted to start a family business. So they actually manufacture their sauce in a kitchen that's in the bottom level of their house. And they, they manufacture pallets of product. And so we've just become really good friends and we both had the name Sarah and our, both our last names started with M. And so the group that was doing all the podcasts, startupradionetwork.com, Mark Grimes and Steve Coates came to me and they're like, Hey, will you do a podcast? And I was like, you really think somebody would want to listen to me? That's how I always am. I'm like, are you sure? And they said, oh, yeah, people want to listen to you. I guess we have 1.25 million listeners. There you go. That's right. Now, you gals have a slightly different take, though, because yes. you focus on female. Well, I mean, half, after being working in business for a really long time, you sort of learn things. And I thought, okay, we better be focused on something. So I thought, well, we're two gals. Why don't we just interview women that are working in the food industry? And so that's what we've done. I think we have 107 or 108 podcasts. And if yeah. you start at the very beginning, I think interviews are, I interview Sarah and then Sarah interviews me. So oh. it's kind of fun to get to know us. That, yeah, that's really good. Yes. I mean, I, when I started, I had a friend who was the sort of original producer yeah. where he sat in the chair and said, okay, so I'm going to show you how to do this. It was like, yeah. Okay, and so. we, we have a couple of sponsors. So I always tell people you should try and get sponsorship because there are real costs that are associated with doing a podcast. You oh, have yes. to have editing and you have to have your um, write up for every podcast you do. You have to have a couple paragraphs describing what the listener is going to hear. And you have to have a logo. You have to have a professional logo to get onto the people uh, to edit. Yeah. And people to edit. <laughs> that, that's my important part. Yeah. Uh, I think how, how has it important. changed? How has it changed your educational teaching process, mentoring? Well, I mean, for myself, I would say because I, I got thrown into being a kind of a public figure with that article in the New York Times. And then I actually was on CBS Sunday morning. I was interviewed that same year and I've been on the BBC worldwide and the New Yorker magazine and all these people want to hear what I have to say. It's made me be tend to be somewhat introverted, but it's made me actually have to articulate what I think. <laughs> Instead of just keeping my thoughts to myself, I have to actually share them. If there was such a thing as telepathy, I could just download my thoughts to people, but I actually right. have Bam. to open my mouth and blah blah blah, get the words out. <laughs> so, folks, by you know, give a listen to meaningful marketplace, Masoni and Marshall. 
Yeah. The from the education standpoint, again, real quick, if folks are in, do they need to be Oregon residents? No. Uh, so if, yeah. So if you want to work with our team, I'm not the only one at the Food Innovation Center. I have a team of a couple of food scientists and an administrator. We have an intake form that you fill out. So you fill up email sarah.massoni at oregonstate.edu and send me a note. And we'll send you a form to fill out because we're a government agency. And so, of course, get that filled out and send it back to us. We'll give you a 30 minute Zoom call and we'll talk about your ideas and see if there's a way for us to work together on it. If it's something where you really want someone to contract and do the work for you, we will we will put together what's called the scope of work, which is our budgetary outline. And then from there, we would put it into a contract and then have a startup meeting. And we would essentially become your food scientists. So we join your team and we're work for hire. So a lot of people think if they work with the universities that the university wants to own their knowledge or whatever. But in our case, we're work for hire. So that means you come to us with your idea and you direct us and we do we make our best effort and do what you ask and prepare something that's um, not only delicious, it looks good, and it has food safety all built into it. Very important. Yes. We didn't talk about food safety a whole lot, but yes, no, we there, is didn't. The, there is that aspect. This is a different industry in mm-hmm. the fact that you can you can do harm. if It's you're regulated and you're liable <laughs> if you make something <laughs> sick. Guess what? Right. I was, yeah, that was uh, one, of, one of the other folks I met through one of the pitch things who was doing a, a pickled product. Mm-hmm. And I was never, I've worked for a pickle company, but never was aware that there were extra stringent fermented food rules. I figured that they were safer because they're fermented, right? So what would be the problem? And in fact, little things can grow in there. Yeah. It's a whole process for sure. <laughs> Going through it. Well, Sarah, hey, I, pr- I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Sure. Talk Thanks, about Steve. the industry and about FIC. There is a segment, the program where we try to put our guests a little bit on the spot, but you've worked with, you know, again, hundreds, thousands, maybe even of brands and entrepreneurs. We'd like to get you to pass along a little advice or counsel. We call it words to grow by. And it can be a word. It can be words. It can be a phrase whatever you'd like to uh, share with your fellow fellow folks out there. Okay. So this is what I tell all the people I work with and the people that work for me. I tell them, get the money. (laughs) Oh yeah. I like that. (laughs) So get the money. That has a lot of different meanings, but in general, you know, if you're a food entrepreneur, you have to make sure you're paid. Right. right? And we're a service industry. We ha- we it's easy. What we do is second nature to us, but we have to always think about the value we add to other people's businesses and make sure that we get paid for it, so that we can have the food innovation center because it's not fully funded. We have to bring money in to keep our business going. Right, you have to be you you have to work at it to keep it going. So hence the phrase, get the money. Get the money. <laughs> We're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to use that for sure. Well, again, hey, really appreciate it, Sarah. Thanks for joining us. And, you know, to a fellow podcaster, we'll we'll do this and, you know, we'll get you back on sometime and talk about whatever the next million dollar brand is that you helped to launch. I'd love to do that. Thanks so much, Steve. And hey, by the way, thanks to all the rest of you out there for joining us in another Next Level Brands podcast. 
podcast is sponsored by Next Level Brands Community. More information available at nextlevelbrands.com. Our producer is Deborah Armstrong. Our production assistant is Consolata Wakuka. We're always grateful for feedback and comments. So if you have an idea for a show or a special guest, let us know. If you're enjoying the show, please follow us, take a minute to subscribe, and most important, refer us to your friends. After all, the more the merrier. I'm Steve Clear. We'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Next Level Brands podcast with G. Stephen Clear. Learn more at next with two X's, levelbrands.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Next Level Brands email list or subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode.